Dr. Neuheiser served as the preaching pastor at Grace Bible Church in Escondido, California. He's also the director of the Institute for Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, formerly CCEF West, and an adjunct professor of biblical counseling at the Master's College. Furthermore, Dr. Neuheiser serves as a board member at both the Biblical Counseling Coalition and the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors. 2016, Jim accepted the position of director of the Christian Counseling Program and professor of Christian Counseling and Pastoral Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, where he serves. Uh, there he teaches uh, many of the counseling courses as well as some practical theology. Addition, Jim has authored and co-authored a number of excellent and influential books uh, we have used and uh, benefited from. I think there's a sample of them in the foyer, and then there are more next door for sale. There, there may be some left. Most of them have been sold by now, but you can check that out. I think they will bless you. Jim has been married to his wife, Caroline, who's in the back. Caroline, we're delighted to have you here as well. She ministered to many of the ladies yesterday. Uh, they've been married since 1979. They have three adult children. Caroline is also an author and counselor, and her book is next door as well, a gift to the body of Christ and to us. Um, so Karen and I met Jim and, and Caroline last year, last May. Uh, we went to a retreat hosted by the ACBC, Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, for help with our souls. Uh, some of you know we have children that don't serve the Lord, and it's grievous to us, we needed help. And uh, Jim and Caroline sat with us for four hours, uh, over two days. They ministered to us, cared for us, discipled us, encouraged us. And I believe, I'm confident, that will be our experience today as we hear Jim speak to us. So can we welcome Jim as he comes to <laughs> preach God's word to us? We have been blessed this weekend and have felt very much at home with brothers and sisters of like faith. And uh, if you brought a Bible, turn to the book of Ruth. When we come to church, we're supposed to be happy and joyful. And I don't know that many of you well, but I imagine there's some people today who have come with a very heavy heart. Things have been difficult. You've had problems in your family. Your children aren't walking with the Lord. Your spouse isn't walking with the Lord. Or you have no children. You have no spouse. You've suffered financial losses. And as a believer in God, you could be tempted to say, God's hand has been hard on me. Life isn't turning out the way I expected it to. Sometimes you may even feel badly because you realize things you've done have messed up your life. And it's not just adults who are sad. Children are sad. Things go hard for you too, don't they? People pick on you. Things don't work out the way you want with your activities. You get in trouble. It still hurts. And then there have been statistics about teens and depression and young adults and how many are struggling with this. And, and what I want to do today is take a person in the Bible 
and she said of herself, when really hard things happened to her, she said, the hand of the Almighty is against me. She was a woman who had no hope. And she was actually, she's actually the main character in the book of Ruth. And the main character is Naomi. Because Naomi is the person who needs deliverance. And Ruth is the heroine, and Boaz is the hero, and I assume many of you kind of know the story. But it's Naomi who is this person who she's been widowed, and her sons have died, and she is a believer in God, knows God is in control. And because she has no husband, has no children, it just seems like life is ruined. No hope for the future. And yet, in this story, we see God's grace and God's redemption. I love Old Testament narratives, and there are three things I like to do. One is to just, we need to explain what was happening back then, because there are ways things were under the Old Covenant that were no longer under that in the New Covenant. We have things in common with them. There are a lot of differences. For example, in verse 1, it's there, it says there was a famine in the land. Now, famines today or droughts and people, a volcano erupted in the Philippines or this or that happened, it's meteorological coincidence to us. Weather happens. But in the Old Testament, God had promised in Deuteronomy, if his people were faithful, they would have rains and they would prosper. And if they were unfaithful, they would be punished with no rain. And nothing happens by chance in the book of Ruth. And so when it says there's a famine, that means that was something that happened because of the disobedience of God's people. They were being chastised. And this family in Bethlehem, when there's a famine, they leave. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Um, another example would be later in the book when Boaz marries Ruth because a near relative wearing, marrying a widow. We don't need to do that either in the, the new covenant. They're, they're, so there are differences. So the first thing is just we need to understand what's going on. And then the second thing is Jesus in Luke 24 went through the entire Old Testament and showed how the entire Old Testament points to him. The Bible is a book about redemption. It's not just a book of stories. It's not just a book about rules. Uh, the Bible is pointing to Christ. And, and in the book of Ruth, redemption is an obvious theme because you have Naomi who needs rede redemption and she's in this hopeless position. It says in chapter 1, it, it was in the days of the judges and Israel needed redemption because they were in a huge mess. They were all fouled up. And then ultimately we need redemption. And the redemption of Naomi and Israel points to our redemption. It's all in this wonderful book. And then the third aspect of what I want to do, what we want to do, is on a very practical level, the New Testament says, 1 Corinthians 10, that these things were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And so even though there may be cultural differences and even differences of covenant between them and us, we as the people of God have things in common with them. And that's going to be a lot of the theme of what I'm going to talk about. And as I said, as we, we look at Naomi, uh, she says the hand of God is against her. Everything has gone wrong in her life. And there are a couple things I want to draw out of that as we go through the passage. The end, we're going to deal mainly with the end of the chapter. One aspect would be that we need to, I think it helps us to understand what it's like to be sad or depressed. Most depression is sadness. And so how does a depressed person become depressed? How do they think? How can we? And then the second part is, well, how do we help them if it's someone you love? Maybe you're married to someone who's prone to this, or child, parent, or for ourselves. How do we fight against the sadness that can sometimes take over our lives, and especially to watch out for bitterness, which is very dangerous. 
So to set the context, I'm going to focus on the last four verses, but I'll set the context. As I've already mentioned in verse 1, that you had this little family of Naomi and her husband and their two sons. When there was a famine in the land, they went to Moab. They thought they'd be there for a short time. They were there for 10 years. The husband dies. The sons die. Naomi is there with her daughters-in-law. Uh, she decides when she hears in verse uh, 6, I believe, that there was now the, the famine was over and Bethlehem was now fruitful. She decides to go back. And as she's going back, they kind of come to a crossroads. She has two daughters-in-law of their dead sons. And one named Orpah goes back to Moab. She says, you ought to go back to your people. Go back to your people. Go back to your gods, Naomi says. And Orpah, by the way, Oprah is from that name in the Bible, Orpah. She goes back to Moab. We never see her again. She's off the stage. But Ruth, the other daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabitess, when Naomi is saying, verse 15, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And thus may the Lord do to me, or, and worse, if anything but death departs you in me. So when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. And so as Naomi is returning at the end of the chapter, she's returning to, to Bethlehem. She has Ruth with her. But in these last verses, Naomi describes the bitterness of her life. And just everything is against her. She has no hope. And this can help us to understand the struggles we go through and the people we love as they go through. So verse 19. So when they went... So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her, Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So Naomi makes a very stirring entrance into Bethlehem. She's been gone 10 years. She thought she probably could just gone one year. And as she comes in, the women see her, and they're like whispers. They recognize her. Bethlehem's probably a very small town. Everybody knows everybody else. Um, they wondered if she'd ever come back, perhaps. And the analogy I would give would be, it's like if you go to your 15-year high school reunion and people look at you and say, you haven't changed a bit. And then they whisper, the years have not been kind to her. Well, I think Naomi, when they say kind of shocked, is this Naomi, probably the cares of her life and her sadness are, are written upon her face. And Naomi, when she gets to town, she says, I'm going to change my name. No longer call me Naomi, which means cheerful, because I'm not. Call me Mara. Bitter. Now, ironically, uh, in the Bible, by the way, when people get name changes, usually it's from the Lord and it's good. Abram to Abraham, Jacob to Israel. Naomi wants a name change. Never again is she called Mara, though. Uh, and we'll see why as we keep going. She has no reason to be. And so she's very upset. 
So why is this? And, you know, kind of understanding sadness. And I will preface this by saying what we call depression, almost in the majority of cases, is ordinary sadness. I do believe some people may have medical conditions that make them feel depressed that aren't necessarily spiritual in nature. But I really believe most of what we call depression is spiritual depression. And most sadness is because we've lost something. And when she says in verse 21, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. And we can relate to that. Actually, I can relate to that in some sense. And the sadness that I struggle with personally in life is we have three sons, and they're still physically alive, but at this point they're spiritually dead. They all professed faith as young people, and as they became adults, they turned away. And it's something that makes our hearts heavy every single day. We lost what we thought we had. And again, other people have other losses. Your, your business fails during COVID for reasons not your own, or someone you really trusted betrays you, hurts you, leaves you. And so Naomi, not only has she lost something, she is without hope. We saw this in verse 11 when she says to her daughters, why my daughters should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? And you know, she's thinking logically that nobody in Bethlehem is going on to marry a Moabitess why should you come with me? Maybe, you know, if I had kids, one of them might be able to marry you, but the math doesn't work out. Uh, you know, she, her view is she's going to go back to Bethlehem and just kind of live out her days in barrenness and emptiness. Uh, nothing good can happen. And in verse 21, she says, I went out full, having a husband, having sons. She was somebody when she left for Moab 10 years ago. Now she's coming back as a nobody. And her hope is gone. Part of the reason is, again, that's where their culture is different than ours. In Israel, every family had an inheritance in the land. It was necessary that you have sons to inherit your piece of the kingdom and carry on the family name. That was really, really important to them. And so for her, no husband, no sons, their name's just going to be wiped out and forgotten forever. She's lost all hope in God. And again, most of our, what we call depression, is sadness like this. Um, and then another aspect is Naomi, like many depressed people, is tempted to be embittered. And in this case, even embittered against the Lord. Uh, having good theology sometimes can be a problem. If you're an atheist and bad things happen, if you're honest with yourself, all you can say is, I was really unlucky. The, I got cancer, and the meteor hit my house, or whatever the bad thing is, you know, that that just things go bad, it's just a world of randomness and chance. Well, Naomi is, has a reformed view of God, if you will. She believes in God's sovereignty, and she, so that's where she says, the hand of the Lord has gone against me. Uh, she recognizes that you know, whatever has happened, you know, the Almighty has afflicted me, she realizes that it is from God. And for those of us who are believers and understand God's sovereignty, sometimes when really awful things happen, we, we've got this extra problem to deal with, which is, oh my, why didn't God prevent this? Why didn't God heal my loved one? Why didn't God protect my business? Why hasn't God given me the things for which I yearn in life? Now, in the context of Naomi, my opinion is, and I think I'm pretty safe interpreting the passage this way, is one thing Naomi was also blind to, which may be true of some depressed people as well, I don't think she's really considering her own contribution to her own problems. 
If you look at verse 1 of chapter of Ruth 1, when there was this famine, they left the land of the promise. Bethlehem means house of bread. They're residents of Bethlehem in the nation where God is Lord and has given his covenant, and they escaped to pagan Moab. Well, if you've read the book of Genesis, you realize when there were famines and people left the promised land, it always goes badly. There were a whole bunch of people who managed to live and survive in Bethlehem, hopefully pursuing repentance that God's hand of discipline would be removed from them. And then in Moab, her sons marry Moabitesses. And Deuteronomy 7 says, you're not supposed to intermarry with these pagans. They're going to corrupt you. And so there's some disobedience here. And even perhaps as there was a famine, she's collectively responsible with the other people in Bethlehem for disobedience that led to the famine. And yet, you know, she's tempted to be bitter. But she's not the only one in the Bible. Jonah, when things are circumstantially, he doesn't like. He says, I have good reason to be angry even unto death. And the person in the Bible I think Naomi is most like is Job. Job too suffered great loss. He lost his children, property, and even his health. And Job also recognized that God is sovereign over these things. He had good theology where he said to his wife, shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? And he even uses some of the same Hebrew words that Naomi does. Naomi calls God the Almighty. It's almost like she's implying he's a bully. Here I am, poor little Naomi, and the Lord is picking on me. Well, Job uses the language, the Almighty has embittered my soul. Same words that Naomi was using herself. Now, in the context of the book of Ruth, the book of Ruth isn't just here to find out how Naomi's problems are solved. It's a story of redemption. And remember, these are the days of the judges. These are not the good old days. These are the days where really glad are over. And the people of God were so disobedient, they were so oppressed, and largely was their own fault. The people of God needed redemption. The book of Judges ends by saying there's no king in Israel. The the people of Israel need a king to deliver them from their enemies. And if you read ahead, the last word in the book of Ruth is David. And the Lord brings through all of this the deliverer for the nation. The Lord also, of course, brings deliverance to us. Another aspect of of Naomi is she fails to recognize God's goodness to her. I mean, verse 15 is about the saddest thing in the whole thing where she says, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. As if, well, God won't take care of you. You better go back to your gods and see what happens. But one thing is I read through the passage. And again, if you're talking to someone who's sad, people who are sad have these blinders on, these extremely dark glasses where they can't see the good things God is doing for them and the promises of God and and they live in their misery. And so if you just look at the passage, Naomi should have noticed some things. Uh, Just the fact that in verse six, the Lord has visited his people, giving them food. Verse 22, the harvest has happened. And nothing happens by chance. It's like in a movie that kind of goes from black and white to color and things are better now. God has lifted his hand of discipline. The people have food again. And even in verse 19, the little phrase, they went until they came to Bethlehem. If you've read the book of the Judges, what do you think about two women apparently traveling alone uh, 100 miles from Moab to Bethlehem? Wasn't safe in those days. Horrible things happen. The Lord has brought them there safely. And then uh, a more important point is is that, this is really the rest of the book of Ruth, 
is the Lord has made provision for widows in among his covenant people. That's why she should have gotten there as soon as she could. And, and that is that in Deuteronomy 24, it just talks about gleaning, how God's rule for agriculture was when you, you harvest your field, you don't harvest the corners, and if you drop something, you don't pick it up, you don't go over the field twice so that widows and orphans can come behind. And it was a biblical welfare system that it was just designed that uh, people could eat that way. And that's Ruth chapter 2 where Ruth goes out and gleans in the field of Boaz and God provides materially for Ruth and for Naomi. There's another provision in Deuteronomy 25, which was when a man dies without heirs, that the widow can marry a close relative and the, the child of the widow will be legally the child of the man who died, therefore the family name will be carried on. And that's Ruth chapters three and four. And, and even from the divine perspective, all along, God is planning to bless her. And yet, you know, and, and God has made provision in, in his law to take care of her. And she is hopeless about that. And then another aspect, when she says in verse, um, she says, I came back empty. Poor me, I'm all alone. How do you think Ruth felt? <laughs> I mean, she's not alone. And again, Ruth 2, 3, and 4, Naomi, she schemes a little bit, but it's, it's Ruth through whom blessing comes. It's when God saves Ruth, then you know, that's how Naomi has food, and that's how the name continues. So she's not alone. And then even beyond that, Ruth isn't just there. God has saved Ruth. And I've thought of Naomi as maybe the one, one of the worst evangelists in human history where Ruth is with Naomi, and Ruth says, go back to your people and your gods. And Ruth says, I'm not going. <laughs> I want to worship the God of Israel. Your people are going to be my people, your God my God. She turns from the idols of Moab to believe in the Lord. Again, in spite of Naomi's sending her back to the wrong place. Uh, I have my own story about bad evangelism. Maybe some of the teenagers can relate. When I was... I was brought to faith by the grace of God, 14, 15 years old. And when I was a junior in high school, I think it was, I had this guy that wanted to be my friend and he's hanging around me. And I basically told him, look, I only have time to be friends with Christians. And so if you won't come to church with me and if you won't take this seriously, I really don't have time to hang out with you. I'm not recommending that as an evangelistic technique, but God saved him. That was almost 50 years ago, and we went and saw him. He's, we still are friends. He still has the Bible I gave him, like in 1974. So God can even use poor evangelists like Naomi and like me. God has done something amazing. And then just the fact that God gives promises and offers hope. Uh, some of you have read, I hope all of you have read Pilgrim's Progress. Remember when Pilgrim, when Christian in, is in Doubting Castle, and is tormented by giant despairs, and even thinking of ending his own life, he's in such sadness and hopelessness. And yet finally he remembers the key of hope around his neck that gets him out of there. And I'll just quote one famous passage. I want to give you the context, the famous passage in Jeremiah 29, where the people of Israel are going to go into exile, 
and they're going to be under the Babylonians, and it's going to seem so terrible. But the Lord says, For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Meaning they weren't going to be in Babylon forever. God loves his people and will always deliver them ultimately. And in the same way, even in spite of Naomi's sins and failures, God plans blessing for her. And when you get to chapter 4, there's such a sweet chap- picture at the beginning of chapter 4, Naomi's holding a baby. And actually the people even say, they say, not Ruth has had a child. She says, Naomi has had a son. Well, she didn't give birth to that child, but that child will now be the one to carry on her family name. And all the time she thinks God is against her, God is for her. And the same thing is true for us. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're in covenant with God by faith, God is for you. And his promises are true. And we see that God is not only for Naomi, but when Israel probably felt the same way, God is against us. The Philistines, everybody else are picking on us. Here we are in this horribly oppressed condition. God is working through this little family to bring forth David, who will be the king that makes Israel great and delivers them from their enemies in an amazing way. But even that doesn't solve the problem that David is the one who is the one through whom Jesus Christ comes to bring redemption to the world. So it's it's a story of redemption. And even in the hopelessness and the darkness and the sadness, God is at work. And David is the grandson of the union between Ruth and Boaz. So some application. So how do we help those who are sad Uh, They're tempted to see everything as terrible. They're tempted not to recognize the good things God is doing. Well, one thing is we should have compassion for those who are struggling. Uh, Proverbs chapter 25, verse 20 says, Like one who takes off a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar on soda, is he who sings songs to a sad heart. Even if someone's trouble is their own making, it still hurts. And I think I will admit for myself as someone who struggled with sadness and depression, to have somebody come and say, just be happy and rejoice, everything's wonderful. That is like taking off a coat on a cold day or vinegar on soda. It's like, that doesn't help. And so we should have compassion. And elsewhere in Proverbs, we're told in chapter 18, verse 14, the spirit of a man can endure his sickness, but it's for a broken spirit who can bear it. And the idea there being that it would be easier to be sick than to be sad is what the Proverbs is saying. That the, the, the depth of sadness that some people have when life seems to be against them, their hopes have been dashed, is a very, very heavy weight. And so we should be compassionate for those who are struggling. But also, be it for ourselves or for somebody else, we also need to be careful not to be embittered against God. That was Job's temptation too, wasn't it? And at the end, when the Lord rebukes him, he says, I put my hand over my mouth. And so we can't charge God with evil. If we don't understand what he is doing or why, we can lament. That's Lots of Psalms are lamentation, that they don't like what God is doing, they don't understand what God is doing, but we can't charge God with evil. In Psalm 73, the psalmist is complaining about the prosperity of the wicked and says, I, I would have stumbled, uh, and, and yet, then I went to the presence of God, 
and I saw, my feet came close to stumbling. My slips had almost slipped, but then I saw their end. And so he got the higher eternal perspective and he realized in the long run, God is good and God is just. Even if in the short run, everything seems all messed up. So help me not to speak against God. And then thinking in terms of, well, why do people get depressed? I've touched upon it a little already. There are two or three situations in the Bible where what's called sadness really is what we would think of as depression. And one would be loss, like we've talked about, like in Psalm 42, it's the, as the deer pants for the waters. And, and the psalmist in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, he laments for four or five verses at a time. And then he talks to himself, but hope in God, I shall again trust him. Then he laments some more. And you know, he's, he's away from the people of God. He's got enemies who are mocking him and hurting him. And, and so he, he's sad, he's suffering, he's, he, he's, in the, he's struggling in the depths of despair and, and clinging uh, to the Lord. And we'll actually talk about his solution when we get to our solution. So most sadness is just circumstantially, life is tough. I thought he'd be married by now. I thought he'd be married this spring, but my fiance broke up with me. I thought we'd have children by now. I thought our business idea was going to work. I thought she was my friend. Things are hard, or I can't believe at this age I have this disease. Why should this happen to me? And these are real struggles. We're going to talk about answers in a moment. The other reason I'll mention in Scripture that's referenced specifically is sometimes sadness or depression occurs because of sin. When David had committed adultery and, and murder in Psalm 32, he says, when I remained silent about my sin, your hand was heavy upon me night and day, like the fever heat of summer. And it was only when he repented that that sadness was taken away. Now, I brought that up second, because don't assume that if someone is depressed, they've committed adultery or killed somebody. Um, but it's something to explore in our own hearts. And sometimes it's our sinful response to trials that can compound the depression. Uh, Psalm 73 would be another example of just life isn't fair and seeing it seems like the bad guys are winning and the good guys are losing. And so I will acknowledge as well, there are some people who experience feelings of depression and there can be hormonal issues. There may be other physical issues we don't even understand. And I think people are free to take medication when they have those experiences. I will also say that the medical data, and I have a good friend who's a medical doctor who's actually written a book about this. Um, the medical data would be, unless someone is severely depressed, the medication doesn't really help in the long run anyway. At best, it deals with symptoms. It doesn't deal with causes. People are free to try those medications. But if the causes are spiritual, nothing is really going to be right till the spiritual issues are dealt with. But there are some people that do have what would be called undefined depression. There's not sin. There's not tragedy. Law, great loss. They're just having those struggles, and we should have compassion on them as well and not try to figure out what their sin is. But for most people, uh, the pills are not going to help and say, well, then what can I do? And I had a real case uh, several years ago. I'll call him Rob. And Rob is a guy, let's say late 40s, and Rob uh, was really depressed. And the inciting event was that he had worked for the same company for many, many years. The owner was a friend. 
And from Rob's perspective, he had contributed to the success and prosperity of that company, including kind of making the owner very well off. But then the owner, about a year ago, let him go to hire somebody cheaper to do the same job. And Rob is very, very bitter about that. And it's been compounded by the fact that Rob, at his age and experience, and this was at a time when the economy was harder for getting hired than it is now, but he could not find another job. And he kept trying and failing, and he was in a state of misery. And there was one more compounding factor about Rob's case that really made it interesting, and that is, as Rob was talking about it, he was saying, well, I felt when I was in my 20s, I was being called to ministry or to missions. But I got married, I had kids, I got a job, and he really felt that God was angry at him, and maybe all these bad things were happening to him because he hadn't listened to the call of God when he was younger. Now, part of my answer was B, he did what he was free to do, and ultimately that was God's sovereign plan. And, but regardless of that, it was like he, his idea was, God is finished with me because I didn't listen. I made a wrong turn and there's no way to get back on the freeway again, and my life is wrecked. Now, Rob knew the Bible, knows the Bible pretty well. And so I thought about, and Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a famous book called Spiritual Depression. And he has this famous phrase, the men heard it a couple times already this weekend. He said, we need to stop listening to ourselves and we need to start talking to ourselves. It, what Lloyd-Jones means by that is when you're really, really sad, and this could be anxious and other spiritual struggles as well, if you just let your mind go, it's gonna catastrophize. It's going to see everything as terrible. It's going to ignore the good things and magnify the bad things and, and imagine all the horrible things that are about to happen that are even worse. And it'll rob you, your, your mind, if you're just listening to what your mind is saying when you're in a bad state, it's just going to make you worse. So the talking to yourself part is, he says, Psalm 42 is an example where the psalmist complains for four verses and then he reminds himself of who God is and the hope he has. He says, hope in God, I shall yet again trust him. And so... Another aspect of that, so listening to yourself, tying into John 8, 44, Jesus said to those who are rejecting him, he says, you have your father, the devil. And he says, he is both a liar and a murderer from the beginning. Satan destroys lives with lies. He drives us into despair. He drives people to suicide by believing lies. And so an assignment I will commonly give for someone who is struggling emotionally, especially depression would be, what specifically are the lies that Satan is tempting you to believe? Make a list of those lies. And then we want to answer every single one of those lies with the Word of God. It's kind of like what Jesus did when he was being tempted by the devil. And in the case of Rob, you should have been handed something as you came in. Rob is more the author of this than I am. <laughs> this was his homework that I've tweaked some to make it more general. And they're also in the back. We've created some of these counseling cards to kind of go to some basics to help people in their struggles. But here are the lies that Naomi was tempted to believe. And actually I tied it, I thought Rob is just a male version of Naomi. That he feels like everything is against him. He feels like life is without hope. And so here are some of the lies he's tempted by. You know, the first like Naomi, God is against me. The hand of the Almighty is against me. Actually, the scripture says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And how nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And he goes through all this list of horrible things. And so God is the giver of every good gift. He is for you. Don't believe that lie. 
My situation is hopeless. That's again Naomi and Ruth chapter 1 that, you know, I, our family's going to die out because there's no way I can have sons who can marry these women and just everything's, nothing good is going to happen. Well, God is called in the New Testament repeatedly the God of hope. We already quoted Jeremiah 29 where God said, in spite of the sins of his people and in spite of his chastisement upon him, his plans for them are good plans. Romans 8:28. You know very well you know, that God works all things together for good for those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, it's, it's not hopeless. God is merciful. I am all alone. And Naomi had some said that as well. Here I am alone where Ruth was right there. Well, God will never leave us nor forsake us. I'm really moved by Psalm 27 verse 10 where the psalmist says, even if my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord is there. That God himself, even if family hurts you, God will be with you. Psalm 23, even in the valley of the shadow of death, he is with you. You may feel alone, but by the way, nice thing about the valley of shadow of death is you're walking through it, not camping there. He's going to bring you through it. And then I can't live without whatever it may be. You know, I can't live without, in Naomi's case, I can't live without sons and descendants. And we can be really tempted, you know, that... You're single, I can't be happy unless I'm married. I'm, I'm married, I can't be happy unless I have kids. Or I'm married, I can't be happy unless my spouse changes. Or you know, all the other, I, we have these things we think we, we need, but sometimes God takes away the things we think we need so we will be dependent upon him more than anything else. In Jeremiah 17, verses five and six says, if you trust in men, you'll be like a bush in the desert. And if you're putting your hope in what people will do for you, um, you're going to be disappointed, like the drought. But if you trust in God, you'll be like the tree planted by rivers of water that bears fruit in its season. Its leaves do not wither. It's, that's the place of security and stability. And then the lie, the temptation to say, I've ruined my life by my sin. Well, if God can be merciful to David and forgive him of murder and adultery, he will forgive you if you confess your sin. He is faithful and just to forgive your sin, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Uh, I love Isaiah 55, verses 6 and 7. You know, you've, you've sinned. You've had an abortion. You've been sexually immoral. You've used substances you shouldn't have used. You've lied. You've gotten in trouble. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion. And he will abundantly pardon. Those last two phrases really move me. Okay, here you are in your sin, and you've made a wreck of your life. And it says, not only will God forgive you, it says, he will have compassion upon you. Like the father of the prodigal son, if you will return to him, no matter what you've done. And his pardon is an abundant pardon. Life is unfair. That's Psalm 73. This isn't right. Job. Well, in the long run, it is. One day our momentary trials will be light compared to the glory to be revealed when Christ returns. One day the wicked will not prosper and they will receive their just due. God doesn't care. Yes, God does care. The passage in Isaiah where it says, Can, more easily could a nursing mother forget her child. And by the way, you've got a bunch of them here. Congratulations. <laughs> but also I see how these mothers and these fathers and even siblings, they love these children. But it says, sooner could a nursing mother reject her child than God would forsake you. You're more precious to him than a baby is to its mother. Well, the last one I have on the list, and we could do a lot more, but the last one would be is, I am no good. 
Okay, you're right about that one. <laughs> I'm the chief of sinners. I have no righteousness. I think Bert quoted this verse already this morning that we have a righteousness not of our own obtained through keeping the law, but the righteousness which comes from God by faith. I'm, the, the, the security I have is not how good looking I am. It's not how popular I am. It's not how rich I am. It's not who likes me or all the other things the world looks at, my security is the fact that though being a great sinner, Christ has saved me. So as we struggle with loss, with sadness, as we're tempted to believe the lies, we need to remember that without a doubt, God is for us. God is for his people. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. God has brought us redemption in spite of our sin. That's how we know God is for us. That's the basis of our hope. And in that we can have joy. Now, Ruth is about redemption. This family was redeemed by having a grandson. Israel was redeemed by God providing a king. God has brought redemption to a world that's in sin and death through the family of Naomi and Ruth to bring us Jesus Christ, the son of David. But if you are not yet reconciled to God, if you still need redemption, what I've said is offered to you, but it's not yours yet. The scripture said, all of us have sinned against God. I love the expression Isaiah 53, all of us like sheep have gone astray and every one of us has turned to his own way. Sin isn't just killing people and being sexually immoral. Sin is living for yourself rather than God. Living in autonomy, living independently. And if that's your condition today, God offers you that you would come to him and receive forgiveness. Repent of your autonomy, repent of your pride, repent of your self-will and receive the forgiveness that God offers as he gave his son to die. Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. If you're far from God, you need to be reconciled to God, and he provides all that you need, but to believe on him, to believe on Christ, he will forgive you and he will save you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the beautiful revelation of yourself in the book of Ruth. We thank you that when things seem to be completely against us, you are still for us. We thank you that you redeem us even out of our failures and our sin. We pray, Lord, for those who are sad today, that you would help them to see the good things you are doing and have done and will do. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our faith to fight the lies and to trust in the word you've revealed. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.